something a little bit differently. You've heard me say several times that I believe the Bible is the verbally inspired Word of God, that it is the solution or the answer to every spiritual question you have. There is no other. Now, it's important that we, that I began to think that way. But my telling you what I believe does not necessarily mean that you're going to take the Bible in that particular sense, simply because I said so. So I want to spend a few minutes this morning, in the, or this evening, in the introduction of this particular lesson in talking about, does the Bible really matter? How did it come to pass? How can we put our faith in the Word of God? And why should we put our faith in the Word of God? Inspiration, as we know it, inspiration guarantees the written records that they're going to carry out the purposes for which they were intended. Now, that's important for us to understand that particular idea. The doctrine of inspiration provides assurance that divine authority stands behind the words of the Scripture. Did God really say that? Is this really what He wants us to know? You know, we ought to be careful. When we're beginning to understand the inspiration that it accords the characteristics of those documents that we have, which is the Bible as we know it, it that we do not approach it with some kind of preconceived idea. So often we do that. We've got, a, we, we, we've got an idea in our mind and we want to find the Word of God that, that supports that idea. And perhaps we need to make some kind of uh, adjustment of that particular passage or just read one part of it. I want you to understand the book of Hebrews sets forth that divine chain of authority. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. The writer says, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, and by whom also He made the worlds. Here's Jesus, the very Son of God, and the information that we have in this particular passage is, even though the, prophet, the God inspired those prophets of old, now He speaks to us through His Son. And notice again in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we must give the more heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began, began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You see, God's going to bear witness that these words were given to Jesus, these words were written for our learning, for our admonition, that we might be able to know His will. God reveals the truth through His Son. God's Son 
also reveals the Father. You see, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the spokesman for God's Word. He said that in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days He has spoken unto us by His Son. It's not my words. It's not your words. It's the Word of God. You see, when Peter wanted to put Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah, remember that in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And they saw Moses and Elijah speaking with Christ. Now, I don't know what all went on at that particular time. I don't understand precisely how they knew Moses and Elijah. Did they hear their names mentioned? Did, well, you know, I don't know. I know that's what happened because that's what the Word of God says. But you know, Peter was so excited about this thing, he, 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 he called, told Jesus, Let's, let, let, let me just make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then God spoke out of a cloud at that time. And he said to them, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. Now, if you notice that particular story as well, it's interesting that in the presence of Jesus, Moses and Elijah, that is, the law and the prophets, disappeared. Verse 8. They're no longer authoritative in comparison with Christ. Jesus himself, after his resurrection, declared, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. He received his authority from God. He said in John chapter 12 and verse 49, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John chapter 7, rather, verse 16. And he says again in verse 12, verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. God's revelation through his Son is complete. The law indeed was given through Moses, but truth and grace came through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Now, against those who wanted to treat Jesus as one of the other spiritual beings, perhaps an angel, perhaps another prophet, Paul affirms, he says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything, for in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1, verses 18 and 19. Therefore God placed Him, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 and verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And then too notice with me that God's Son reveals the Father. Those 
to whom Jesus chose to reveal the Father were his closest disciples. They attested to his words. You remember I read part of them uh, before in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus pro promised them, Whatever you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or more comprehensively, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus doing the speaking. And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit so they could bring the word of saving grace to others, according to John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. Jesus sent out 70 disciples on one occasion, equipped them with his authority. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me. And, who, uh, and the one who sent me, according to John 13, verse 20. On the basis of possessing all authority, he commissioned his followers and disciples of all nations to go therefore and preach the gospel to every creature. What we have a responsibility, we have a wonderful thing. We, when we hear the apostles, when we read the apostle Paul, when we read the apostle Peter, when we read the other writers of the New Testament, we hear Christ. If the apostles taught something, all the authority of Christ is behind what they taught. Unless we have apostolic authority for a practice, we don't have Christ's authority. And then the Holy Spirit is the source of our inspiration as well. Christ promised the Holy Spirit to the apostles to guide their understanding, their communication and the preservation, maybe we ought to say, of His Word. To support the message of the eye and ear witnesses of Jesus' ministry, God added His testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Hebrews 2 and verse 4 that I read a few moments ago. Jesus defined the ministry of the Holy Spirit the advocate, whom the, Holy, the, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. John 14, 26. And he added, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He, he, for he will not speak on his own, he, but he will speak whatever he hears, and he will hear and declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 16, verse 13 through 15. And that Holy Spirit performed His work. You see, the Bible, as we look at it today, is God's written word. The message of great salvation was at first delivered orally. Peter and the eleven apostles were standing up on that day of Pentecost and preaching a powerful sermon and that was spoken of that and confirmed by those who heard him. Three thousand on that day of Pentecost obeyed the gospel. They heard perhaps Peter or one of the other eleven preaching the word that day and that made an impression. The apostolic authority comes through the written word. 
through what we have written before us. The same message was delivered by word of mouth and also in writing. Paul commanded, stand firm, hold fast to that traditions, the teachings handed out, and that you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. Hold fast to those traditions. Peter, quoting Isaiah 4, verses 6 through 8, identifies the living and enduring Word of God. With the gospel salvation, he writes, all flesh is like grass and, the, all, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass, grass withers. The flower falls, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. That Word is the good news that was announced or preached to you, according to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23-25. through 25. Written word served as a reminder of what had already been taught. Therefore I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, Peter says, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. I think it right, so as long as I am in this body to refresh your memory, since I know that my death will come soon, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And then one more. Inspiration provides God's Word to us. The, the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to His disciples in preserving His teachings we call the inspiration. Inspiration functions to communicate with accuracy and sufficiency and the authoritative words delivered by the Lord and His prophets, and the written word of Scripture, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and Psalms, according to Luke 24, 44. They had received that. They knew what the Old Testament said. Now, we know those Scriptures as the Old Testament, is what he's saying there. Peter writes, writes this following. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, 20 and 21. Paul writes to Timothy. Another writer now, writing to Timothy, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. In a later passage, along with setting forth the purposes of inspiration, Places beside the Jewish scripture, salvation is by faith in Christ. This basis was given to us as the inspiration for the writings of the New Testament. Now I want you to think about those things for a few moments. We're going to be looking at another section in what we're wanting to talk. We're talking about the church. We're talking about what we do in the church today. We're talking about all the things that, that God has given us and told us that we need to be doing. 
We want, to, we want to look at seeing. There's a rich doctrinal teaching in the New Testament about vocal music. Singing proceeds from the heart and is accompanied by the attitudes of the heart, especially the attitude of thanksgiving and praise to God. Singing expresses thanksgiving and praise expresses adoration. That's one of our purposes in singing. That's why we sing. It seems that the subject of music is brought up in almost every generation. There's a long history concerning the use of instrumental music in the worship. And if we have time, we're going to discuss it just a little bit at the end. But I want you to think about some things first. I want you to think about the case for vocal music. Remember that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, the Passover. He had told them to go into the city, prepare the Passover meal for them. He had given them instructions about where to find the, the upper room and how to find the, the, the everything that was needed, and they did. And as we read that particular passage and concerning that in Matthew chapter 26, at the Last Supper, after everything, after he had uh, ordained the Lord's Supper, and as they finished what they were doing there and were ready to depart, Matthew 26, verse 39 says, When they sung, had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When they had sung the hymn. It's interesting to me, the Jewish Passover celebration included the singing of the Hallel. That's Psalms 111 to 118. They would sing that during that Passover meal. Most likely, the, the, since the reference in Matthew is probably the last of these, Psalms 115 to 118, that, they were, that, that was sung at the close of the meal, the practice of Jesus was his disciples with his disciples, and especially since it's noted by Matthew and Mark, likely accounts for the practice of the early Christians singing when they came together. Especially when they came together to partake the Lord's Supper. Paul personalizes his directions concerning singing in the assemblies of, God, uh, of, of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, he says, What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. But what's, what's the value of just vocal music? Well, there's a rich doctrinal teaching in the New Testament about vocal music, what we're doing when we sing. I want you to note what the New Testament says we're doing when we sing. Congregational singing accomplishes what many beneficial purposes would accomplish. First of all, we're praising God. Singing is a way of praising God. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. Pictures Christ in the midst of the assembly when saying, when I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. As a matter of fact, he quoted from the Psalms. Perhaps the psalms close to what they were singing. Their use by Christians 
by, began in the early days of the church. Ephesians 5, verse 19, Colossians 3, verse 16. And they've continued to be a staple of Christian worship ever since. The word hymn actually means praise. And then we're to be singing with the heavenly host. Uh, singing shares heavenly praise. The heavenly beings right now are constantly singing, constantly praising God. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 talks about the four living creatures around the throne of God, each having six wings and were full of eyes around within. They do not, they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's part of what they're doing. And again, in verses 10 through 11 of that fourth chapter of Revelation, You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. This is an example of biblical praise in song. There were many others in the book of Revelation. More songs are listed in the book of Revelation than in any other book of the Bible except Psalms. Were you aware of that? Singing in heaven. Revelation 5, Revelation 14, Revelation 15, each has, that, has those songs. When we sing God's praises, we're sharing in a heavenly activity. Moreover, when we're praising God in song, we're actually anticipating an end-time activity. Have you ever thought about that? By sharing what we're, in what we're uh, having to do, what heavenly beings are doing, we also anticipate our own participation in the praise of God in a future heavenly presence. And then, too, we give thanks. Singing's a way of giving thanks to God. Ephesians 5, verses 19 and 20 says, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always. For all things. One of the ways we can do that is through our psalms. And then in Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So songs are directed to God. But they are often also offered to God through Christ. And in His name, that is, with reference to Him as an act of worship to Him, songs proceed from the heart, should, and they're accompanied by the attitudes of the heart. Ephesians 5, 19, singing, speaking to one another. As we blend our voices together, we're speaking to one another 
singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. You see, that attitude of thanksgiving, that attitude of praising God, singing expresses that grace, that thanksgiving. Also, singing preaches Christ. How many songs do we sing that tells us about Christ and what He's done? And, and uh, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20 have been identified by scholars as early Christian hymns. They all have in common that they proclaim the story of Christ. Numbers of the songs we sing tell the story of Christ. Christ is preached not only in sermon, thankfully, but also in the hymns that are sung. Christian saving uh, work on behalf of humanity is the reason why Christians sing. But he's not only the inspiration for a Christian song, he also provides the essential content for it. And then two, confessing one's faith. Singing confesses faith. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, giving thanks to His praise. Praise to God and preaching Christ are also confessions of faith. Making a confession is not necessarily expressed in, in a melody but it certainly can be. With the lips, confession is made to the Lord, and sometimes we set those confessions to the melody of a song. number of songs that we sing speak of the fact that we have sinned and we need salvation, and that salvation comes through Christ. Then, too, there's offering a spiritual sacrifice. According to this same verse, Hebrews 13, verse 15, the fruit of the lips is a spiritual sacrifice. Instead of material offerings of the ancient pagan and Jewish temple worship, Christians offer spiritual sacrifices. If you, I don't know where you are in daily Bible reading at this time, but if you're reading some of those Old Testament uh, passages, especially Deuteronomy, some of those, you can see what they had to do as they came together praise God and bringing in all of their offerings and all of their sacrifices that were to be made at that time, ours are spiritual. Doesn't mean they're any less valuable to us. They should be more valuable. One of the items that qualifies a spiritual sacrifice is song. It's offered from the human spirit according to God's will. Then, too, let's express the indwelling. Singing expresses the indwelling spirit and the word of Christ, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. And Colossians 3, 16 and 17. They make parallel statements, if you notice, with some kind of interesting variations, but Ephesians 5, 18 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians says, let the word of God, Christ dwell in you richly. Are we not talking about the same thing? 
the Word of Christ came to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let the, you're to be inspired. You're to be filled with the Spirit according to that passage. You see, when we sing, when Christ dwells in us richly, as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, it is with gratitude in our hearts that we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. I deliberately put these two statements together. The Spirit and the Word are often set against each other. I believe that biblically they belong together. It's not necessary to interpret one of these statements in terms of the other of our, so that the Word of Christ really means the, uh, the Spirit or the Spirit really means the Word. They belong together. And then we provide ed edification. Singing is mutually edifying. I quoted a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, when Paul says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the, with the mind also. I will sing praises with the mind also. This verse is said in context that emphasizes the necessity of speech being intelligible in order to contribute to edification. We know without any consideration that we cannot edify one another without speech. Hopefully they can see our actions and be enthused and edified to some extent that way, but we need to have speech in that as well. That's the necessity. The verses continue. Otherwise, this verse is, is said, we're going to praise Him with the mind also. But verse 16 and 17 can, uh, continue saying, Otherwise, if you bless with your spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you need give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Paul was talking about those who speak in other tongues. And they were some who did so in a public situation without someone interpreting. He said, don't do that. You have an interpreter present. Same principles apply, apply to singing as it does to prayer, as it does to speaking in tongues. The words are to be intelligible. They're to be uh, singing uh, as, uh, as prayer, and as preaching, as everything else is, is to be done. It's to be intelligible to others present because singing as well as praying is to build others up mentally and spiritually. Hence verse 26 says, Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done decently and in order. Singing is to be edifying. Therefore the manner in which they're sung, the teaching of 1 Corinthians coincides with Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. As those verses say, singing is speaking to one another as well as giving, being a, a thanksgiving to God in the name of Christ. Also, it's one way of expressing emotions. I've got that on there somewhere, maybe. No, don't guess I do. Uh, singing expresses deep emotions. James chapter 5 and verse 13 admonishing, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. This first not congregational setting. The idea is applicable to songs in the assembly, but singing is a way of expressing emotion and then manifesting unity in the, of the church. Singing exemplifies that unity. At, uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, one of the purposes of the congregational assembly is to exemplify the unity of the church. Joint participation in song is a wonderful way of doing that idea. Now, having talked about some facets here of singing and worship, permit me, permit me to approach this subject from a different way. Remember that our goal is to restore the New Testament church. We desire to follow the New Testament in all aspects of the church, especially worship. What did the New Testament church, fastened by the apostles as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, what did they do in worship? How did they approach singing or the music of the worship? Now I recognize we're living in times today that individuals who may visit our assembly for the first time are amazed that we do not have instruments of music in our worship assembly. There's no sound of a piano, there's no organ, there's no drums, no guitars, no keyboards, no harps, no other instrument that you can think of. They are nowhere to be heard when we come together for worship. The musical sound that fills our services is a sound that most would understand. It's just voices. Singing praises to God. It's 100% vocal. It's a cappella. That's a word that means as in the chapel. Indicating that the chapel did not have any kind of instruments of music. It is without instruments. It's a commonly used today to say it's vocal only. But allow me to briefly summarize some of the past history of musical worship in the church through the pages of time. One writer, uh, speaking of early Christian music, wrote the antagonism which the fathers of the early church displayed toward instruments has two outstanding characteristics, vehemence and uniformity. Now what he was saying by this, by the word antagonism, is that instruments in worship were opposed by all. The word vehemence indicates that instruments in, in, in worship were opposed intensely by the church fathers. And the word uniformity meant that they were intensely opposed to all. Now, a brief study, and we're not going to have time to really get into a brief study of it, but a brief study shows that instruments of music was not introduced into the church to the early 1300s. Now, just thinking briefly uh, and roughly, that's, that's 1260 years after the New Testament church was established. What we're wanting to do is go back to that period of time after when the apostles were there in that first century worshiping with the New Testament church. Can we worship like they worshiped? You know, even though instruments didn't show up to the 1300s, most historians report, report that it was the early 1500s 
that organs had become a, a, a fixture in almost every important church building. And keep in mind that all of this happened at that particular time in the Roman Catholic church buildings. During the days of Sir Willie and John Calvin, it was John Calvin that said, I have no doubt that playing upon cymbals, touching the harp and the viol, and all that kind of music, which is so frequently mentioned in the Psalms, was part of the service in the temple. But when they, that is the Christians, frequented their sacred assembly, musical instruments in celebrating the praises to God would be no more suitable than burning incense and lighting up of lamps and other shadows of the Old Testament law. We can trace the history on down through the ages and realize the New Testament church did not use instruments of music. We know that. We know that in the Old Testament, David did introduce instruments of music in the temple worship, but they were not carried over to the Christian assemblies. If we do go, desire to go back to the New Testament and worship as the New Testament church worshiped, under the authority of Christ and the Holy Spirit, then we cannot use them either. I think the answer is very simply that God's in charge of every element of worship, including the use of instruments in worship. He has the authority to decide whether or not those instruments can be used in worship. If he hasn't placed instruments in, in his worship in the early part when the church was established, shouldn't we believe that we do not have the authority to bring them in either? Simply, we want to worship as they worship. The only way I know to do that is to go back to the New Testament and follow that pattern. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you that you've given us your word. You've inspired it so we know that it's a guarantee that this is your will. We pray your blessings to be with us as we strive to worship you in praising you and giving thanks to you and with our songs, with our prayers, with our presence, with every act of worship. Give us that blessing, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.